which it'll be like 17 minutes and everybody will be like, that was the best sermon you've ever preached, BP. It was something about it. Something about it touched me. The fact that it was 17 minutes. Anyway, all right. Very quickly. Um, so we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen in just a moment. So you can look at it there as well, either way. And uh, just um, before we jump in, let me say this. Um, uh, Exodus chapter 2 is where we're introduced to sort of how Moses gets in the particular predicament that he is in. His you know, mom gets pregnant. Uh, the Pharaoh is starting to kill all these baby boys to sort of you know, uh, put a, a lid on the population growth of the Hebrews. And so if you remember the story, his mom hides baby Moses in, in this little you know, sort of uh, raft made of reeds, and, and they, she sets him out on the Nile River knowing that uh, one of uh, the Pharaoh's daughters is downstream. And so sure enough, uh, baby Moses floats downstream. Uh, the daughter finds baby Moses in the reeds and uh, chooses to adopt this uh, little Hebrew baby. And Miriam, his sister, is hiding in the bushes, and she says, oh, by the way, would you like me to find a nurse for the baby? And so um, uh, the Pharaoh's daughter says, that'd be great. And so what ends up happening is Moses' mom, you know, gets, up, gets to end up at least nursing and, and really raising Moses through his childhood. But then Moses ends up um, being part of Pharaoh's household at a certain age. We're not exactly told when he becomes part of Pharaoh's household, but he knows he has this dual identity. And he knows that part of his identity is that he's a Hebrew um, of the people that are the slaves in Egypt, but he also knows that he's been adopted into Pharaoh's household. And so he grows up with these two uh, dual identities. One day he's out um, sort of walking around and he sees one of the Egyptians uh, beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And so he steps in and he kills this uh, Egyptian slave driver and buries him in the sand. Uh, what ends up happening is that a little bit later, somehow Pharaoh finds out that uh, Moses committed this crime, and so Pharaoh is going to try to to kill Moses to sort of make a point. So Moses runs and he flees into the desert. And uh, while he's in the desert, he runs into these seven daughters, and he ends up sort of kind of um, uh, taking a liking to one of them. She's a daughter of the priest of Midian, of a priest of Midian. He ends up marrying this daughter. And uh, then um, at some point in time later, he's been married into this family. He's taking care of uh, the sheep and the goats of this, um, this priest of Midian, and he's wandering around in the desert. And then this is where we meet him here in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So just follow along with me if you would. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you very much that um, throughout your word, uh, you tell us stories of how it is that you're working to redeem us. Father, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read stories of how it is that you restore us. Father, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you tell us stories of how 
you offer your people um, forgiveness. And Father, you tell us stories about who you are. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that would be the primary thing that we would see. We would see who you are and who it is that we ought to be in light uh, of who you, our Heavenly Father, is. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, I entered into Covenant College as a freshman um, in college back in 1990, played soccer and uh, spent, you know, most of that first semester um, going to soccer practice, going to games, bathing less than I should have, being nastier far more than I should have. And I started hanging out with this um, young lady whose name was Chris Franklin, and uh, she was a real sweet young lady that I met, and we were just kind of buddies. And, uh, you know, probably after about a month of being in school, her parents were going to come up. Uh, to visit. And she said, hey, I'd love for you to meet my parents. And she said, oh, by the way, my grandparents are coming with them as well. They were from New York. And uh, so um, I sort of made a mental note of it and uh, had that the Saturday following had a soccer game. And so I played this soccer game, came back from the soccer game, may or may not have bathed, I don't know, um, climbed into my bunk bed, was laying there and the phone rang and it was Chris. And she said, hey, by the way, my parents and grandparents are here. I'd love for you to meet them. And so, you know, I you know, popped up out of bed. Again, had I, I don't remember if I had bathed. I don't remember any of that. But I just got up and thought, okay, I'm going to go meet him. And she said, we're on the overlook, which is sort of the front part of campus that overlooks the valley below. And so probably wearing, you know, a pair of sandals and an old pair of shorts and an old t-shirt, probably with my hair sticking up, I thought, I need to go meet this, you know, girl's parents and make a good impression. And so <clears throat> made my way across campus. And as I was coming up to where the overlook was, Chris was right there, and she was walking towards me with um, these two people that had, um, you know, gray hair. And uh, so as she made her way towards me, again, Brian Pierce, trying to be really polite, trying to be thoughtful, um, I stuck out my hand to the first person that had somewhat gray hair and was coming towards me. And of course, in my head, what I was thinking was, these people look a little older. These must be the grandparents. And so I stuck my hand out to her mom, turns out, and I said, hey, you must be Chris's grandmother, at which her face fell immediately, and I tried to follow it up with a joke, which was, I'm just kidding, you're clearly Chris's mom. Well, needless to say, the relationship was pretty much over at that point, just done, really, really done. Anyway, she transferred to another school, I learned my lesson, it doesn't matter how old you are now. I will pretend like you're 50 years younger, like I, whatever. Anyway, it's just bad. So whatever, learn from my mistake. Anyway, so the, the reason I sort of share that silly little story, that funny little story, is just to say this. You know, first impressions are kind of important, right? They just matter. First introductions are very, very important. Here in Exodus chapter 3, we have an introduction, right? We have a first impression. We have uh, a story of, of someone meeting someone else. In this case, the people that are meeting are Moses, who's been wandering around in the desert, right, taking care of these flocks, and God. And God reveals himself to Moses, right? He reveals himself, not just um, by introducing himself, but he reveals something about who he is to Moses. And so we're just going to talk for a few minutes this morning about what exactly God reveals uh, about himself to Moses and to us. And let me just say this really quickly. This is not an exhaustive list of who God is right? This is just a couple pieces of who God reveals himself to be through this uh, encounter with Moses. The first thing that we see about God in this passage is that God is a God who pursues people who aren't even looking for him, okay? Let me say that one more time. 
part of what we see about God in this passage as he interacts with Moses is that God is a God who pursues people who aren't even looking for him. Let's jump into verse 2, and we'll go through verse 4. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Moses, in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I'll go over there and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, and Moses, Moses, and Moses said to him, here I am. Now, let me just call time out here really quickly. We don't have any, you know, like super clear numbers about how old Moses was when he fled Egypt. We don't have any super clear numbers about how long he'd been wandering in the desert, although uh, most people would say that by this point in time, uh, Moses had been uh, out there for quite a while. He may have been nearly 80 years old, is what some people would have speculated, right? So he was older at this point in time. And so when God appears to him, he's been wandering out there far away from Egypt, far away from Israel, far away from his family for quite some time. And part of that is because he's a murderer, right? He murdered someone when he was in Egypt, and he's on the run. And so not only is he on the run because he's a murderer, but he's also probably mostly given up. It's not like he's out there looking for God. It's not like he's out there sort of wandering through the desert so he can have an extended quiet time. Part of the reason that Moses is out there wandering around in the desert is because he's given up. In fact, it tells us that he's married to the daughter of a priest of Midian. It's interesting that it says a priest of Midian because uh, the people of Midian worshipped Baal. And so when you read this, it doesn't mean that Jethro was a priest of the Most High God. It means that Jethro was a priest of Baal. And so Moses had kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, right? I'm leaving Egypt behind. I'm leaving the Israelites behind. I'm leaving my God behind. And I'm going to marry this young lady whose father happens to be a priest of Baal, right? And so he wasn't looking for God. Moses was not out there in the desert hoping to have a spiritual encounter with God. In fact, he might have been out in the desert hoping to avoid an encounter with anyone. And yet, in that moment, in that instance, even though Moses wasn't looking for God, God was looking for him, right? Now, part of what we know about Scripture is that there's story after story and truth after truth that tell us that God is a God who pursues people that are not looking for him. This ought to be good news, right? It ought to be good news for every single one of us in here because there are times and there are people who are looking for God, but there are plenty of us in this room this morning who aren't looking for God. Listen to what we read in Scripture. John chapter 6, verses 44, Jesus talks about this concept. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Part of what Jesus is saying is that my Father is the type of God who draws people to himself. My God pursues people who aren't pursuing him. That's good news. Romans 3.11 says this, no one seeks God, no, not one. All have turned away, right? So Romans is this great theological book, this great theological treatise, and part of what Paul is telling us in this, um, in this letter to tell us about who God is and how he operates is that, again, God is a God who pursues people that are not pursuing him. And so some of you are probably thinking out there, I thought, I thought God only pursued people or responded to people who were pursuing him. Like, isn't that the way that it works? But I want you just to think for a moment about different examples in Scripture. What about Samuel? You guys remember Samuel from the Old Testament, right? Did Samuel pursue God or did God pursue Samuel? Right, God pursued him, exactly. How about David? Was David uh, sort of on some search for God or rather did God search out David? What about Abraham? Was Abraham searching for God or did God search out Abraham? How about Levi the tax collector? right? Jesus sought him out. 
How about Zacchaeus? How about the 12 disciples? What we see over and over and over again in Scripture is that God is a God who pursues people who are not pursuing him, who aren't even looking for him. That's great news, right? That, and that's sort of the way it even works in human relationships, right? I mean, some of the men in this room who uh, pursued their wives, um, at the time, maybe their wives uh, now weren't looking for a man. Uh, I know, for example, like with Krista and I, just to use a quick example, uh, I can't go into the whole story, it's too long, but suffice it to say that Krista was not interested in a guy, right? She didn't need a guy, she didn't want a guy, she wasn't looking for a boyfriend, she definitely wasn't looking for a husband, and uh, yet I pursued her time and time again. Uh, in fact, it got so bad I had asked her out on several dates, and she uh, would say yes, and then she would have to cancel. She did that three times on me, and that is actually true. And so there was sort of at time number four, I thought, you know what, I'm going to give her one last chance. And um, so uh, I invited her to go to chapel, because you have to go to chapel at Covenant three days a week. And we, there was an orchestra coming in. And so um, I invited Krista and said, hey, you want to be on my chapel date? And so I figured she'd have to go to chapel. And uh, so I said, by the way, you may want to dress up. And so I dressed up in a suit and tie. And uh, Krista thought I was just joking. But when she showed up, I had a suit and tie on. And I had one of my friends um, dress up in a tuxedo uh, as a maitre d'. And he, uh, we went over to the balcony. And he led us up to the top part of the balcony where we sat and watched the orchestra from this level three balcony. Uh, but the point is, is that Krista wasn't looking for me. She wasn't looking for a husband. She wasn't looking for a man. It was because I was pursuing her that we are where we are today. Sorry about that, by the way. Just kidding. Anyway, all of us here uh, this morning are here for one reason or another, right? Some of you think you're seeking God for holy and good and right reasons, but the reality is that what you're really doing is you're looking for God to be a genie in a bottle, so that if you pray the right amount of times and live a good enough life, then God will bless you and your family and your business, right? Some of you in this room really aren't pursuing God at all, and you kind of know that, right? That's not a mystery to you at all, right? You know that you're not particularly close to God. You may feel guilty about it. You may not care, right? Some of you in this room, there was a time in your life where you pursued God, where you sought God, and you really wanted to walk with God for the noblest and, and purest reasons, but for whatever reason, You've fallen away from him, right? Life gets busy, suffering occurs, who knows what happens. But this point today that we see here is, is good news for each of us. And the good news that comes out of this passage is that God is a God who pursues people who aren't even looking for him, right? That's true for each of us this morning, right? And it may be that the way that God is pursuing you this morning is through this sermon, right? It could be that in this sermon, you're going to have an aha moment, and you're going to say, God, are you, are you looking for me? Have you been pursuing me? Do you want to have a relationship with me? We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, but we see this truth over and over and over again, and it's that God pursues people who aren't really all that re interested in having a relationship with him, and that is good news. And so what should you do, maybe, is the question. The answer that I would give you is that I would simply ask you to respond to God today, whether it's the first time or the 101st time, maybe you should simply start off by asking God, God, what do you want with me? What would you have of me? Do you really want to have a relationship with me? I would have you start there. God is a God who pursues people who aren't even looking for him. The second thing we see in this passage is that God is holy. Listen to verse 5. Verse 5 says this, do not come any closer, God said, 
take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And so what we see over and over again is that when people come into the presence of God, they are moved, they're transformed, they're undone by his holiness. One of the primary examples of this is found in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we hear about Isaiah having this encounter with God. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another. And listen to what they're calling to one another, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, right? And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, right? That's what happens when we come into an encounter with God, right? When we're introduced to Him, when we see Him for who He really is, we realize that not only is He a God who pursues people who aren't pursuing Him, but He's a God who is holy. And so we've got to ask the question, what does it mean even that God is holy? Our tendency when we think about holiness is to think about moral perfection, and there is an element of that obviously in holiness as it pertains to God. Our tendency is to think of sort of Mother Teresa as sort of somebody on a 100% scale uh, or a 100-point scale who's a 96, and to think of ourselves as a 28, and to think of Hitler as a negative 4, right? That's what we have a tendency to think of when we think about holiness. And some of that is in there. Um, That's a piece of this, so it is moral holiness, but it's also just that God is the standard, right? That he's the ultimate standard for perfection, that he's the ultimate standard for what is complete and what is whole. Right? I had a friend in high school named Tracy Bowen who was a year younger than me. He went to play uh, football at Clemson. He was a running back. And uh, he was sort of, um, just to use this example, he was about 100 on the scale of what it meant to be a man, right? At least physically, right? He had traps that touched the bottom of his earlobes, right? He had about 5% body fat. And again, he's a year, year younger than I was. His waist was about 13 inches, and his shoulders may have been 67 inches, right? I mean, he, he looked like an action figure. And, uh, it, it, you know, if you stood next to him in the, in the mirror, you know, and happened to compare your two bodies, it just didn't take long for you to realize you didn't measure up, right? And, and there's a sense in which that, I think that's part of what's being communicated here with God's otherness, right? That God is, he is whole, that he's complete, that he's perfect. And when we stand in the presence of perfection, we realize, ah, we're a little bit different than you are. We fall a bit short. There's also an element of, of majesty. There's an element of grandeur in this concept of holiness, right? This summer on our trip, we're actually going to be spending a couple of days in a town called Chamonix, which is the, the site of the first Winter Olympics, and it's at the foot of Mont Blanc. And so you're in the middle of the Alps in this amazing little alpine village, and when you stand at the foot of Mont Blanc and you look up out of this valley, it's this beautiful snow-capped mountain, and in the presence of that mountain, all of a sudden you're struck by the majesty and the grandeur of God's creation, right? For some of you that happens at the ocean. For some of you that happens in Colorado. For others of you it happens in different places, maybe at an orchestra. But at the same time, that's, that's a part of that idea of holiness. It's standing in the presence of something that is majestic, of something that is grand. And so the question is, when God says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground here, what are we supposed to do? What is Moses supposed to do? And I think the answer is, 
that we're always supposed to approach God in humility. We're always supposed to approach God, and we're supposed to look at him and be amazed by his grandeur, to be amazed by his perfection, to be amazed by his majesty. We realize that he is the true standard by which we are to judge ourselves by. God is a God who pursues people that aren't even looking for him. God is a God who is holy. And then again, the last thing we see in this passage is that God is a God who is faithful to unfaithful people. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, then he said, this is God speaking to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And we just see a couple things very quickly in these verses. The first is that in some way, God works through families, right? And, and again, part of what we see on Sunday mornings is sometimes we will baptize infants in here. And part of what's being communicated in there, we see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, but we see it throughout the New Testament as well, is that there's a way in which God works through families. In other words, because Krista and I have entered into a covenant relationship with God, our children stand in a different relationship with God because of our relationship with Him, right? Something we see in circumcision, something we see in baptism. We see in this passage that God is faithful to His promises. You know, you read this list of names here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and part of what we're reminded as we see this introduction is that God has remained faithful even though the people of Israel have not remained faithful. Second Timothy verse, chapter 2, verse 13 says this, If we are faithless, he, that is God, will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Again, that's good news. It's good news for us to realize that we are in a relationship with a God who, though we are oftentimes faithless, remains faithful to us because he cannot disown himself. And the last thing we see in this passage or in this section really quickly is that God is a relational God, right? We see in those verses there, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Part of what God is saying to Moses is, I'm still in relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's part of the reason that when Jesus came to earth, he entered into relationship with the 12 disciples. It's part of the reason that on the last night of Jesus' life, as he was praying to the Father, part of what he prayed in what we call the high priestly prayers, he said this, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Not just know about you, but that they might know you. Right? And that's ultimately what's happening here in the desert is that God is entering into a relationship with Moses. And he's saying, I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I'm pursuing you even though you're not pursuing me. Right? I'm a holy God, but I'm going to make a way for you to come into relationship with me. And ultimately, I'm faithful to you even though you are unfaithful to me. And so the question is for Seven Hills Fellowship, the question is for all of us in this room this morning, is what do we do with this introduction to God and to who He is and who He reveals Himself to be. One of the main things we have to walk away from this morning is that we must know God as He is, not as we might want Him to be, right? We must know God as He really is, not just as we might think He is or we might want Him to be. He is a God who seeks us. He is a God who pursues people that aren't pursuing Him, right? If you're an older brother this morning, that might bother you. But if you're a younger brother, it's good news. And actually, if you're an older brother, it's good news as well. He's a God who is holy, right? 
That, that feels uncomfortable to us in our particular culture, right? We live in a meritocracy, so we think I ought to be able to stand on even footing with every other person in every other context. And ultimately what God uh, knows we need is He knows that we need to stand in the presence of something that is transcendent. God knows that what we need is to stand in the presence of something that is grand and majestic, something that's bigger than us. We need to stand in the presence of our Almighty God. But at the same time, we need to be reminded that He's a God who is faithful even when we are faithless. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news of who you are. I thank you most of all for the good news of who you are in Jesus, that in Jesus you came to earth uh, to pursue people who were not pursuing you. Father, I thank you that in Jesus that we see perfection. We see Jesus as the perfect human, um, both divine but also uh, material and flesh. And Father, we thank you that what we see in Jesus almost more than anything else is that we are offered forgiveness by his sacrifice for us on the cross. And so, Father, I pray that this morning our ability to stand before you, Father, I pray that this week the ability to walk with you, Father, I pray that throughout the course of our lives that our strength and our safety and our security would come from knowing that we are in relationship with you, not because of our goodness, but because of your perfection and the perfection of your Son. And so, Father, we pray all of these things today, and we find our hope in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.